really interesting how decisions work because they're, they're things that happen inside of our heads. Like, uh, you can't see a decision happen, but when a decision does happen, like, it, it actually causes, it manifests itself in the physical world. So that when, when somebody makes a decision in their head, that, that means that they're going to do something as a result of that decision. And so then, when that decision takes place, it leads them to take a, a course of action that will eventually lead to, to somebody seeing the effects of that decision, seeing that decisions actually make impact. And so, so decisions actually don't just happen to us, but decisions affect those around us too. Decisions are, are really, really powerful things that can, that can take place. And so uh, this is true about decisions, whether or not they are good decisions or bad decisions. All decisions have the ability to, to make an impact. So uh, I'll tell you about a bad decision that I, I made one time. Uh, so I, um, I was a child, and I... Um, thought like a child, uh, and I, I really, I wanted to be helpful. I was probably four or five years old, uh, and I loved, I loved every opportunity I, I could have to help my parents out, um, to, to, to feel like I was contributing to something, you know, and so, so that was great, you know, my dad, so he was a painter, my dad worked very hard, uh, long hours, was going all over the place, and, uh, and I loved my dad for, for how hard he worked, and I always wanted to help my dad out, so my dad had this uh, really beaten down red truck that he had, he drove from like job to job to job as a, a painter. And so he is, uh, uh, you know, one day he's working out in our backyard and his truck is, is sitting there in our driveway. And you know, one thing that my dad has to do with his truck is he has to, to gas it up. He has to put gas in the truck to make sure that it, it can go. And so, so my dad's truck is sitting there in the driveway and um, I'm like, man, I really, I really want to help my dad out. Now, it just so happens that uh, in the driveway next to my dad's truck is a hose. And so I think, you know what will really help my dad out? I'm going to take that hose and I'm going to put it in the gas tank and I'll, I'll turn it on and I'll gas his truck up for him. And of course, you know that that did not go so well. Um, so that was, that was a bad decision that I made. I, it, was, it was not incredibly helpful. My dad had to deal with the consequences of that decision. It had impact that went beyond me. So, uh, so that was a bad decision. Uh, I'll talk about another decision I made that could fall in the category of good decision. When I was, uh, when I was in college... I had before me uh, kind of two pathways uh, as I was finishing up. I could either go become a choral director, which is something that I really wanted to do. I was going to pursue a master's degree in that. Um, or I could, like the Lord was calling me into pastoral ministry. And so I could either go this way or go this way. And, um, and so I, I really loved music. I loved what I could uh, be able to do with music. I loved the opportunity to develop other musicians. Like that was a really exciting idea to me. But the Lord was calling me into pastoral ministry. And so I decided in that moment, that was a decision, like a switch that flipped, that this was the path that I was going to pursue. Now, obviously, the Lord called me into that too, but, but I, had, I had some effort in that, right? And so, so I, uh, I made that decision, and then that led to actually a number of things happening in my, li- uh, my life, not the least, least of which is I, I met my wife because I made that decision to go into pastoral ministry. Um, I, I went to seminary. I ended up at Village Church. I got planted in Bartlett. Uh, I ended up at this church. Like all of this stuff transpired because of that decision that I made. So that decision actually had a significant amount of impact, like the, the way that it sort of transpired. And so you could observe in the physical world the results of that decision that I made. 
And so, uh, so some of you have probably made life-altering decisions, whether or not they were, some, some of them good and some of them bad, but, but we all have, uh, can think of decisions that we've made that have impacted our lives in, in significant ways. And decisions are powerful because they produce action. And so actually, uh, as we look at this parable, a parable that's actually really, really familiar to us, uh, this story of the prodigal son, I want us to think about this parable with the framework of decisions in mind. So we're going to use decisions as sort of the framework as we go through this, because this parable, it puts us face to face with different characters in the story and various decisions that they had to make. So, uh, so before we actually get into the parable, I, wanna, I want us to understand why Jesus is telling the parable. So in Luke 15, 1 and 2, it says this. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. So these are not good people, not people who are interpreted to be good in the current society. Tax collectors and sinners are around, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled. They are frustrated because they're looking at Jesus and they're saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Who is he to do this? And what this is setting up is a a, a sort of an us versus them mentality. The, The religious people are looking who are, quote, heathens, and saying, how dare Jesus spend his time with them? And so Jesus is speaking into this situation where these two groups are, are against each other, and, and we need to understand that these tax collectors and sinners, they aren't just any old sinners. Uh, they're, they're not just Gentiles, but they're actually they're Jews that are sinners, which is significant because for a Pharisee, Jews that are choosing to pursue a life of sin are essentially traitors, people who have turned their back on this religion that they are blessed with. And so, so when the Pharisees are grumbling, they're actually really frustrated because Jesus isn't just spending time with any old people. He is spending time with traitors. And so, so Jesus is addressing the Pharisees when he tells this parable. Uh, he's talking to them. He wants to present a different framework for their thinking. But, but then the other reality is that you have people listening to this, the, the, the described sinners in the passage. They're the ones who are listening in as well. And so you have two groups of people, really, that Jesus is interacting with in this parable. And so then he starts to tell it. And uh, the first point is this. We all decide to live for self. So Luke 15, verse 11 says, and he said there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them, and not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. So, um, so just to understand the concept of what's happening, uh, the son is uh, going to receive an inheritance when his father passes away. That's essentially, uh, that's how this works. So it's the idea of inheritance. So when he comes to his father and says, Father, give me the share of what is mine, this is essentially what he is saying. He is saying, Father, I wish you were already dead. I wish you were already dead. Father, actually, so uh, this life that you have given me, this life where I'm living under your care, is restricting to me. You're keeping me from doing the things that I want. Father, it would be better for me if you were dead than it would be for me to continue living in your house. That's what he says when he asks for his inheritance from his father. So my question is, what causes this kind of a decision in a person? What causes a person to make this kind of decision? Because culturally, this would have been a really shameful thing for him to do. 
like to, to, to go to his father and to tell his father that he wishes he were dead, he would have been ostracized for this, this kind of a decision. And so you actually choose to defy a number of social boundaries when you tell your father this kind of thing. So he's not actually just harming his family. He's not just making a decision for himself, but he's, he's also crossing a number of social boundaries that are really unacceptable. And so, uh, again, what would have spurned this kind of decision in this son? And I think probably the most natural explanation that we would all be inclined to come up with is selfishness, right? Uh, selfishness is the, the, the concept that would say, yeah, um, I want what I want. Give me what I want. Uh, but it's not enough to say simply that this guy was selfish because I feel like if we don't dig, we could miss a lot of the detail of what exactly is happening because selfishness is not just about ourselves, you know, we, we tend to think that it is. We tend to think that selfishness is about uh, getting the things that we want, taking care of ourselves, but actually every selfish decision involves other people too. Every selfish decision that we make impacts other people. So selfishness is a concern for self despite what it might do to others. A concern for self despite what it might do to others. So, so it's a concern for self that maybe takes advantage of the time that another person is willing to offer. Maybe takes advantage of uh, perhaps the resources or, or another person's, uh, just their presence. It could be something like that. Uh, it's a concern for self that might disregard uh, the existing gifts that you've already been given. Because that's like the, the son had a lot of resources when he was in the father's house, right? When he was under his father's care, he had a lot of resources, but he disregarded all of those gifts. It, it dishonors the value. So it's a concern for self that dishonors the value that another person has, that another person is innately valuable and worthy to be respected, uh, but it completely dishonors that reality. It, it's a concern for self that betrays or is willing to betray another person. So this is not just a concern for self above all else, because if we say it like that, then we miss the idea that there are other people in a situation. It's a concern that doesn't even care about the harm or the damage that might come to another person because of the way that it's carried out. So uh, we need to understand that when the son says these words to his father, Father, it would, be, it would be better for me if you were dead, we need to understand that the son is actually like, in this story, as Jesus is presenting it, like he's legitimately an awful person. Like the kinds of things that he's saying, that, that he would have this kind of disregard for somebody else, that he would cross all of these social boundaries. So cause, what, what kind of person would say this to their dad? Like to say, it'd be better for me if, if you were already dead. And what we need to understand, so, so the, the father in this story, and we know this because we've heard this parable many times, most of us have, um, the father represents to us God, and then the two sons, we're supposed to see ourselves in either of the two sons, and I think for most of us, we might see ourselves in both of the two sons, but, but as we look at this, uh, this illustration that Jesus is giving us, this is what Jesus is essentially saying. He's saying, when we choose our will over God's will, when we choose to go our pathway instead of God's pathway, this is essentially what we're saying to him. God, it would be better for us if you were dead. If you didn't care for us. If we didn't have your resources in mind. And so that's what we say when we choose our will over God's will. And Jesus is actually saying something that the Pharisees at this point would agree with. That these sinners I'm hanging out with, this is essentially what they've said to God. 
They said, God, you know, our, our will is more important to us than your will is. It would be better for us if you were dead. And so the Pharisees at this point, they're like, yeah, okay, sure. Like, he's, he's going to get what's coming to him. And, and that's what um, we start to see in verse 14. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. So now what has happened is his selfishness, his disregard for others and and concern for himself, uh, it led him to a place that he did not very much enjoy because it says that he began to be in need. So, so it led him to waste his inheritance. It led him to lose all of his assets. It led him to a place where he, he was now far away from home, far away from anybody who knew him, and it led him to be in need. And so now what's happening is that this, this son is starting to feel the weight of his selfishness. He's actually starting to feel the, the consequences that are coming as a result of his selfishness, but he has uh, his own solution in this case. He chooses his own pathway, uh, and this pathway is, for any Jewish listener, this pathway is not an honorable pathway, because what he decides to do is he's going to go feed pigs, and pigs are very unclean animals. For any Jew that's listening, they would think, okay, this is awful. Like, his solution for this problem is to choose to associate himself with everything that is unclean, and not only that, but then as he is as he's working that job, like that job doesn't even earn him enough, fun, m- enough money to, to get the food that he needs. And so he decides, you know, I, I should probably start eating the stuff that the pigs are eating. I should start eating these pods that the pigs are eating. And so um, pigs, you, you have these unclean animals. He wants to eat like they eat. So he's essentially walked himself down a pathway where he is utterly broken. He is, uh, he has, his only resources is the food that the pigs have to eat. And so I wonder to what we might like in this. Um, I think of, you know, when people get themselves in hard situations, and I've heard stories of people who have gotten themselves in a hard places, they might make a decision to, like, sell drugs, as an example. Um, and then, uh, because they have to get by, right? And that's how they justify it. Maybe they even have a family to care for or something like that. Um, and so they, they start to, uh, to go down that pathway. And then um, maybe that person, in the process of doing that, actually starts using the drugs, actually starts becoming addicted to the drugs, actually sees, like, the, the, the trajectory of their life. They thought they were at rock bottom, and then their trajectory of their life actually continues going downward because now they're engaged in addiction. Now they're, they're becoming a prisoner to the thing that they were, thought was going to be a solution for them. So this is, this is the kind of situation that we're looking at. And, and so can we observe a principle in this story? Something that, that might actually pop out to us. When we pursue selfishness, selfish pursuits actually lead us to self-destruction. When we choose to pursue selfish things, they lead us to a place of self-destruction. <coughs> so when I actually, when I think back to the most selfish times in my life, and not even the most selfish times, even the, the times that were just a little bit selfish, um, I can tell you most certainly, like, that led me to places that were not good for me, where I began to be in need. That I actually began to feel the weight of what my selfishness was causing. That it actually began to, to destroy things 
in my life. And I'm sure some of you can, can think of some of your own too. When you have made decisions at times to pursue selfish things, it did not end up going well for you. And that's the story that we have here. And this destruction, it actually causes something to happen inside of this son. It actually creates a response inside of him. So verse 17, when he's face to face with his self-destruction, it says he came to himself. So this guy's experienced a lot of brokenness. Not only did he begin to be in financial need, not only did he begin to actually lack food, not only did he then begin to eat the, the food that the pigs were eating, but, but he's in this, this place where he has nobody around him, nobody to care for him. He has lost everything in his life, and so his life is destroyed. His life is broken. And so when we're in this place, uh, there, there are really like two key things that can happen as we deal with the consequences of our selfishness. Two things that can happen. First of all, we recognize that the failure of our selfishness has a weight to it that it actually does something to us, that it can, uh, can create issues for us. But then the, the second thing that also happens, which is a really, really healthy thing to happen for anybody, is that we come to the end of ourselves. So when we are in the middle of our selfishness and we're encountering the, the self-destruction that is caused by it, we start to realize that we don't have anything in ourselves to confront the issues that we're facing. And it causes us to come to ourselves, to kind of wake up. And I think that even part of the reason that God lets us experience the brokenness of the world that we live in is to show us that we do not have in ourselves the resources to overcome the things that are facing us. Whether, uh, whether it's a result of our own selfishness or whether it's just simply a result of our broken world, so often we are encountered with situations where we are forced to come to the end of ourselves. And I think there is a graciousness of God in allowing this to happen. Because it shows us that we cannot rely on ourselves and we cannot rely on our own resources, but we need to come back to him. So, so we might be inclined to ask, whether it's dealing with the consequences of our, our own selfishness or whether it's just something that simply happens in the world, we might be inclined to look at something and ask, God, how could you do that? Right? That's something that, that we hear people say all the time. God, how could you allow that to happen? How could you do that? But, but I think we might be missing now, I don't want to trivialize the hard situations that happen, but, but I think we actually might be missing the graciousness of God and letting us experience brokenness to a certain degree because it causes us to turn back to him. It causes us to recognize that we are in need, that we don't have anything in ourselves, and to turn to him. It lets us see these things. And so, so ultimately, that we can make a decision to be done with it to be done with our selfishness, to be done with our brokenness, to rely on him. So then it goes on and it says in verse 17, it says, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will rise and go to my father. I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose came to his father. So what leads him? He makes a decision to change, to repent. In this case, what leads him to repentance? He remembers what it was like to be a son of his father. He remembers what it was like in his father's house. He remembers the things 
that he rejected. This is why it says in, <coughs> in the book of Romans, it, it's the goodness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. As we think of the goodness of God and we think of all the destruction that we cause in our own power, pursuing selfish things, it's your goodness, Lord, that leads us to repentance. And so, so as we look at this idea of repentance, I, I want to ask the question, because I think we get a picture of what actual repentance, true repentance looks like in this parable. And so I want to look at four keys to true repentance. <coughs> four keys to true repentance. First, we need to admit what it is that we have done. Admit what it is that you've done. So this guy, as he's, as he's with his father, he says, I'm going to go to him, and Father, I have sinned. Father, I have done wrong. Father, I have crossed a line that is not good. So I'm going to admit the wrong that I've done. The second thing that we have to do is we have, we have to acknowledge who it is that we have wronged. So when he says, he says, I have sinned against heaven and before you. That I have, in, in my decision to pursue selfish things, I've actually sinned against heaven and I've sinned before you. That I've, I've wronged my God and I've wronged my family. The third thing that we do is we accept the consequences that come as a result of our sin. We cannot, per, we cannot think that, okay, now I'm just going to say my peace and God's going to forgive me. But, you know, sometimes our sin has consequences. Sometimes we have to deal with the result of that. And so one of the things that we do in repentance is that we accept the consequences that come towards us. And then, thank you. And then the fourth thing, we follow through with the decision. So we actually choose to, to pursue the path that is in front of us. And that's what he does, right? Because he makes the decision in his mind, but then he actually gets up to go. And I don't know if you remember back at the beginning of the story, but he is in a far away country, which means that he has a very long journey ahead of him. And so when he decides to get up, he's actually following through with the decision. And, and the point of that is true repentance sticks. True repentance actually sticks around. It actually follows through. Now, I don't want to make light of issues because there is a struggle in overcoming sin in our lives very often. We have to fight to overcome sin, but that's the point is that you continue to engage the fight. You continue to take the steps that you need to take to overcome the sin. So whether it's your battling addiction or, or something else, it's, it's a choosing, a, a conscious choice to continue to follow through with decisions and steps to overcome that thing. And, and that's what this looks like. This is a, this is a saying that uh, in myself, I don't have what I need, so, so I'm going to admit what I've, gonna, I've done wrong. I'm going to acknowledge that it actually has harmed people around me. It has harmed God. It, and then I'm going to accept the consequences. And then I'm going to follow through with, the, with the, the decision. So, so now he gets up and he goes to his father. So he, he actually goes and walks the full journey. And, and at the end of verse 20, it says, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. So the sentence tells us a lot. Tells us that the father was watching, was waiting for his son to come back. Tells, so like the picture that we get, like very likely um, daily, he was looking to see his son coming over the horizon. Uh, perhaps even hourly, going out to check to see if his son was coming, that he was actively waiting for his son to return. 
from the day his son left, he's hoping. He's like expectantly. He has anticipation that his son is going to realize the wrong that he did and that he's going to turn around. And, and so the moment, the moment that he sees his son coming across the horizon, he doesn't wait for his son to get to him, but he runs to his son. The moment that he sees that the decision has taken place in his son, he runs to him. And then you see the, the, the intimacy that's in this passage, that he embraces him, that he kisses him, that there's, like, there's no clean yourself up first before you approach me. There's no make yourself right before we're able to have a connection. But, but because of the decision that he made and because he was heading back towards his father, it's as if there's no barrier between him and his father. And I feel like sometimes like we think, oh, I've done too much wrong. I, I can't approach God. I can't get close to him. I need to clean myself up first. But that's not the case. That's not what this is telling us. This is telling us that when our father sees us turn, he runs to us. There is no barrier between us and him at this point. But we are welcomed into an intimate relationship with him, just like the outpouring of love that a father has for his child. So um, I want to talk about the personal side of this because these two lines, or however many it is up on the screen there, three, these three lines, they have been perhaps the most formative words in all of Scripture for me because there was a moment in my life, and I've talked about this uh, bits and pieces before, when I had chosen, like my father had given me good gifts, my father had taken care of me, and what I decided was that I was going to pursue what I wanted. I was that, that, that child who said to my father, you know, it would be better for me if, if I wasn't a part of your family, if, if you weren't even around. I, I'm going to choose to take my own path. I'm going to walk into selfishness, and that caused a lot of destruction in, in my life, and, and so I had, I had done this. I had said these things to my father, and so when these words, when I encountered these words in the midst of that season, when I had decided to repent, they were some of the most changing words because to know that in a season of continual repentance, my God, my father was not ashamed of me, that they actually wanted to be with me. He wanted to be near me. He wanted to do away with the barriers that I might try to create, that he actually he wanted to love me, and he loved me so effectively. That was, that was a powerful and life-changing reality that I experienced. And I, I can imagine this story has been like that for some of you. But those, those, two, those lines are just so remarkable. And then verse 21, it says, The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Notice that none of the words change. Like what he had made up his mind to say, he says in this moment. But the father said to his servants. So the end of verse 22. Like there's actually a piece of his confession that, that is missing at the end of verse 21. He says, uh, because he was supposed to say, let me be uh, as one of your hired servants. But the father cuts him off and doesn't let him say that. He doesn't let him accept that. Instead, what he says is bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. So the son thinks he's going to be a hired worker when he shows up at his dad's house. 
And what actually happens is that he is afforded the full privileges of being a son in his father's house. So every single part, when he gets the best robe, this was the best that the father has to offer. When he puts the ring on his finger, the ring is a symbol of the father's authority. It's a seal of the father's family. So it is a recognition that when people see that ring on his hand, they're going to know he is a child of the father. Uh, And then it says that he brings the fattened calf to kill it. Uh, that that this is this is the best out of all of the work that the father has been doing over the past years. This this fattened calf is the best that he has to bring forward, and they're going to throw a party for the son. And so here's my question: How in the world could the father be so gracious here? Because he's given so much to this son. This son said to his father, "He said, I wish you were dead.'" There's an element of like even scandal here in how the father approaches his son. You know, we love a story of forgiveness. We love stories where, you know, people can be restored and forgiven and brought back to the place. Uh, but, but there should be something in this story that actually offends our moral sensibilities. Because it seems a little unjust that this son who said these things to his father and who squandered all of his father's possessions would be able to, to, to actually receive all of these gifts that his father has to offer. There should be something in us that kind of maybe wants to say this is not right. And that's what make this, makes this love really, really confounding. It's what makes this love hard to understand to a certain extent because it looks past all the wrong that was done and says, no, you're welcomed into the fold. You get the full privileges of being a son. In fact, we're going to throw a party for you. And so uh, I I can imagine, though, for those of you who have children and maybe even some of you who have have children who who aren't pursuing the Lord or, or have broken off from your family, but... I can imagine that it's not hard for you to picture the kind of love that the Father is showing right here. I can imagine it's not, not actually hard for you to imagine a father showing this kind of love to a son who had betrayed him. Because he turns around, because he decides to come back. And the point of this is that God loves us with the love of a father and is not willing that any of us should perish, but that all of us should come to repentance. And so, so why would God extend this kind of grace? It's because he's compassionate and he's merciful. It's because he loves repentance. He loves it when his children admit that they have, do not have the power in themselves and they need him in order to pursue him. This is why David, an adulterer and a murderer, can actually die having the favor of God on his life because what does he do? He repents. He changes his mind and he decides it's better to be with his father than it is to pursue the things that he wanted. This is why Paul, who violently persecuted and murdered Christians, could actually have his life changed around, could become one of the most influential writers in all of history because he repented, because he changed, because he turned back to his father, and God was gracious to him. And you you think the gravity of the things that they committed, we would be inclined to say, how could God forgive something like that? And I don't want to deny that scandal because there is a scandal in this kind of forgiveness. And that's why there's, there's really only one way that this could be accomplished. That this kind of forgiveness could actually be shown to us. Because the Son of God, 
the perfect, sinless Son of God came and took on Himself the full weight. So like justice still had to be done for the wrong that we did. And so Jesus comes and takes on Himself the full weight of God's judgment towards our sins so that we can be forgiven. And not only just forgiven, but, but when we repent, we get to be celebrated. We get to be afforded the full privileges of a child of God. And that's, that's how the Father carries out his decision to love us. And so now we get this blessing of being called children. And so that's, that's the amazing truth of this story. Like, us who were sinners and who had betrayed God get to be welcomed into his family because of what Jesus accomplished. So now uh, it goes on in verse 25, and it tells us the story about the other son. His older son was in the field, and as he came, he drew near to the house. He heard music and, and dancing and He called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father. So something is apparently going on inside of the older brother where he is frustrated that his brother has been, is being celebrated in this moment, is being welcomed in, is being uh, praised, and, and, and that his father would kill the fattened calf and these kinds of things because he actually does see the scandal in what's happening. He sees the problem with what's happening because he's saying, I've been faithful all of this time, and he was very unfaithful. But the problem is the father has compassion, and he does not. So the father loves his son deeply, but the brother has no love for his brother. And so it goes on and says, look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you gave me, you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, he doesn't even say when my brother, he says it's your son, this son of yours, who has come and devoured your property with prostitutes. Let's talk about exactly what it is that he did, dad. You killed the fattened calf for him. Do you remember what he told you? Do you remember when he said to you, it would be better for me if you were dead? I never said anything like that to you. I've been faithful. I've been, I've been walking here, but you decide to throw him a party? You killed the fattened calf for him? Father, how could you do that? How could you allow such a thing to happen? So he's bitter here. And he, he wants his brother to suffer the consequences of his actions. He wants to deny the brother the blessing that he's been missing all of these years. So he actually, in this moment, he despises his brother. He doesn't have any love for his brother. He doesn't have any compassion. All he cares about is that the brother uh, doesn't get the good that, is, that the father wants to give. And so we've got to look at the father's response. He actually, at this point, he's pleading with his son. Verse 31 says, And he said to him, Son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So this is what he says to his son. He says, listen, you have been my child all these years. You've gotten to experience all the blessing that I have to offer. But can we talk about what happened to your brother? Your brother has been gone. Your brother, yes, he made a selfish decision, decision and yes, he, he dealt with the consequences of that, but he has not tasted near the blessing that you've got to taste all these years. And so when he comes back, I want to make sure that he knows the blessing it is to be, in my fa- to be in my house. And so I'm going to share those blessings with him. In fact, we're going to throw a party. 
for him. That's why we're doing this, because I want him to know the blessing that is available here. And so, son, the problem is that you have no love for your brother. You don't actually have compassion for your brother. But if you did, you would see what it is that I'm doing. He had to face the full weight of his betrayal, the full weight of his selfishness, the death that he had to walk through as a result. As he was eating the pig slop, he was there, and and now we're celebrating so that he can know the blessing of what it is to be in my house. But maybe, maybe you've lost sight of the blessing that you've had the whole time. Maybe you actually don't understand what it is that you've been given here in my house what you've had access to because you're complaining about right right now what he's getting and what you don't have but you had the blessing all of these years have you lost sight of the blessing so um we we talk about this and we we try to see ourselves in the shoes of both sons we try to understand ourselves in the shoes of both sons and i i feel like um this is not this kind of attitude that the older brother has. This is not typically the attitude that we have towards new believers. Like anybody who's coming out of hard situations and, and trusting in Jesus, we're really excited about that generally. Like culturally, I don't feel like this is as much of a problem for us, but, but I do want to talk about what might be a problem is um, in cases of church discipline or where somebody has left the church. Uh, in cases where somebody has, has gone down a pathway that we all know is unhelpful for them. And so I want to ask the question, like, are we waiting for those people like the father was waiting for the son? Are we looking forward to the party that we're going to throw when they actually decide to come back? Are we anxious to see them restored to fellowship? Are we looking forward to the the day when those people who left, those people who might have betrayed, when they admit they're wrong, when they own what they have done, they acknowledge the the problems, and then they they get to be restored amongst us? Or have we allowed ourselves to decide that we're going to despise those people who made that decision? That we're going to say, awful things about them, that we're going to reject them and not actually desire that they repent. Because Jesus' entire point, whether you see yourself as the person who's been following faithfully or whether you see yourself as the the sinner in this picture, and like I said, I imagine uh, most of us can see ourselves in both people, um, but but the point, Jesus' entire point of this whole thing is this, you need to love repentance as much as your father does. You need to love repentance as much as your father does. So, so if you're the willing sinner who's, who's taking steps into sin, you know what? You need to love repentance as much as your father does. Your father so desires to see you turn away from that thing and come back to him. So you, you need to love repentance as much as he does. And if you're, the, if you're the faithful follower, the person who has been faithful, and you've seen people turn away, but, but you've been faithful all these years, and um, you know, we all, none of us are perfect, right? We all acknowledge that. We all have issues with sin, but you've been You've been in the fold all these years and you see those people who walk out. You know what? You need to love the repentance of all of those people who have walked away as much as your father does because your father really, really loves repentance. He loves it when these things happen. So we need to, we need to love our repentance. It's, it's a privilege for, um, this is uh, part of reading scripture and engaging with scripture is that God shows us, hey, when we're like walking and not doing things according to his will. You know what? It's a privilege for him to show us that. Because we get an opportunity to repent. Like, and our hearts should be built up with repentance for, for what we want to repent of. Our hearts should be built up with repentance for what we desire to see our brothers and sisters repent of. 
Okay, so what? So what? So the, there's a, a natural question. So this is all about how we respond to uh, the person who does repent. Um, but what about the person who does not repent? Person. So there are a couple of questions that we have to ask as we consider this. First of all, are they a Christian? Um, so if they are a, a non-Christian or a person who, who hasn't trusted in Jesus and they are unrepentant, you know what we're called to do? We're called to love them. We're called to spend time with them. We're called to invest and build a relationship with them. We're called to share the gospel with them. Uh, whether or not they decide to turn, we're called to continue loving them, right? Like that's, that's how we treat those who aren't believers. But, but, but if the person is a Christian, is a faithful follower, and they are engaged in a pattern of sin, I want you to imagine that you've gone and you've called them to repentance and then you've gone with a brother or sister and, and tried to call them to repentance and then you've gone with your church and you've tried to call them to repentance and they're still not turning. There's probably a process that's engaged that, that might even be a, a separation that has to happen. And so imagine you see that person, that person who is still unrepentant. You, you come by them in the grocery store or something like that. How, how do you respond to that person? What do you do? And I think the idea is to say, hey, we love you, we're praying for you, and we really, really long to see you turn, to see you come back home, to see you actually um, be restored to fellowship. But that means that you have to, to repent. You have to do the thing that God is calling you to do. You have to change in the way that God is calling you to change. So that's how we respond to the, the unrepentant person. Um, and then number two, uh, we all need to decide, who does your life belong to? You or the Father? And uh, honestly, like, we... we uh, very likely most of us, or if not all of us, have, have made a decision to follow Jesus. And so that's good. But, but occasionally we get stuck in patterns of sin. Occasionally we get stuck in things that we are trying to overcome. And the hard thing that, that we can start to figure out is we think that it's our life and we should get to do what we want. But in that moment, we're actually called to make a decision that, no, my life belongs to my Father. It doesn't belong to me. So maybe you're in the midst of a little bit of rebellion um, and, and, and the call is that we make a decision, a decision that has lasting impact to turn away from that thing that, that the Father is calling us to turn away from. Because the, the whole point of this whole story, the Father is waiting to welcome, to shower blessing, to love those who repent. And so let us love repentance as much as our Father does. So we're going to transition now into a time of communion because uh, it is scandalous that the Father would welcome us, that he would offer us the forgiveness that he does. And we take communion, in fact, as a celebration of the fact that he has welcomed us because of what Jesus did, because of what was poured out on Jesus, that Jesus actually took the punishment for our sin on the cross. So we, we have these elements, uh, the, the bread and the, the juice, and they remind us of Jesus' broken body, the kinds of physical things that he had to go through in order for us to be forgiven. They, they remind us of Jesus' shed blood. These, these things that Jesus gave as the wrath of God was poured out on him for our sins so that we could have this amazing welcome, this amazing celebration with the Father. And so, uh, so this morning, uh, we are gonna, we're going to take communion together and um, we're going to take a moment of silence. And uh, I would just ask, as, you, as we take that moment of silence together, is there an area that maybe the Lord is calling you to repent in? Maybe he's calling you to come back home. I, I invite you to reflect. Reflect on the blessing that, that he offers us every time we turn. 
Uh, and then maybe, maybe the Lord's not showing you that, but maybe you simply need to reflect on gratefulness uh, for the blessing that you've already received. Um, for, for the blessing that you received when you, when you repented way back when, or maybe it was even recently. But we're going to take that moment of silence and just consider to be thankful, but to also consider what it is the Lord is calling us to. So would you be silent with me?